Hi, welcome to the Bloom Podcast. He's Steve, a clinical hypnotherapist. And she's Susie, parent, cake baker and cancer patient. And together we talk about different ways to get through tough times. And meet great guests who share their amazing stories. Hey Steve. Hey Susie. Last week we were talking about language and political correctness and reading and we found ourselves at a fork in the road. And I said I wanted to cover both topics, both reading and what reading brings to us and language and political correctness and has the world gone crazy. And then we went down the reading path. So how about today we go down the political correctness path? Only if you've got someone as interesting and as articulate as Beth was last week. That's my only condition. And I'm pleased to say that I do. I'm going to welcome Renee Otmar to the Bloom podcast. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Welcome, Renee. Do you want to tell us a little about yourself? Well, I am a, a South African born. I came to Australia in 1986 as a 21-year-old and I've lived here ever since, although I've had long stints in other places. I went to uni. I trained to become a book editor and I've worked as a book editor ever since but I have had some, would you say, some pauses in that work and I, I trained in uh, public health research and I worked in and I still work in that space. So now I call myself a writer, an editor, uh, an ethicist in public health and also a, a researcher and, um, and a coach. And your most recent book? My most recent book is, in fact, thank you for asking, um, published in October this year. It's called Editing for Sensitivity, Diversity and Inclusion, a Guide for Professional Editors. I didn't actually plan to write it. I actually, I needed a, a work like this probably since since 1989, you know, being faced with great many questions and dilemmas about how to address people, how to refer to them in in ways that are respectful and generous, because editors are often the meat in the sandwich in the publishing process. And so as I've never been able to find the advice that I needed in one place, eventually I realised that I should just write this myself. So I've written editing for sensitivity, diversity and inclusion for editors who work with authors of literary works for Australian audiences. But, um, of course, it's of interest to people who write for those audiences as well. And my, my approach is really focusing on the role of the editor in reconciling the needs of the author, the publisher and the intended audience. We wanted to talk about inclusion and diversity in language and political correctness and what that means. I always tend to err on the side of generosity. I mean, many of our biases as individuals and as a society are become unconscious and we really don't think about them very much until someone points it out. And so I'm a great believer in lifelong learning and if we're always learning, then we're always open to correction or to changing our points of view. I mean, there are so many things that we wouldn't say today that when I was a child was completely normal. That reflects changing um, ideas, changing people's perceptions about, you know, certain groups. I mean, tell me a, a person who hasn't said something they regret Unfortunately, when it goes to print, people think of something published as in black and white, although that's not a term that I really like, but, you know, as kind of set in stone. But we can change and we do change and it doesn't mean that it reflects a bad person underneath. Why don't you like the term black and white? Well, I've been thinking about this quite a bit since your podcast um, discussing race and racial background. Look, I grew up with books that uh, in Africa talking about deep, dark Africa and language related to colour always characterising something dark, something black as evil or bad or stupid or to be avoided and white as the opposite, you know, purity and so on. And so to me, uh, you know, I still carry quite a lot of, quite a lot of hurt about related to racism and the way I grew up in the apartheid regime or under it 
that I feel it's kind of triggering, and I know people don't like the term triggering, but it describes it for me. When I hear that black and white, I'm immediately transported to my childhood. <laughs> um, you can't enter this train carriage, you can't go to that toilet, and so on. Thinking about examples of, of how language has changed, I'd say that when I was a teenager, when someone talked about the lady eye doctor, I probably didn't think about it very much except to think, wow, that's remarkable. There's a, there's a woman who is a doctor, let alone an eye specialist. I know someone today, a man in his 80s whom I care for quite dearly, who thinks it's very funny to refer to his lady eye doctor. But now as a woman, I find that really hurtful and offensive because he never talks about his gentleman neurologist, for example. <laughs> I had a, a little win on that recently with my daughter. I was talking about going to see my neurologist and my daughter said something like, oh, do you see her often? And I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned that my neurologist is in fact a, a gentleman neurologist. So I said, oh yes, I go to see her every three months. I thought I'll, I'll, I'll let that one go. If we're at a, a point where um, we're assuming the female, then, then I'm all for it. Renee, I like the phrase that you used earlier, respectful and generous. That seems to me to be a good way to start thinking our way through this. On the other hand, you said that there was a phrase that you found really hurtful and offensive. Is there a line to be drawn? How do we talk without risking that someone will find something really hurtful and offensive? And even on reflection, when we think about it, we might think that they are being perhaps overly sensitive or, or even, as I'm sure your 80-year-old gentleman might say, ridiculous. We always risk offending someone, but we are human and we have so many skills uh, so many tools in our kit bag as humans in the way that we communicate that we know when we're being hurtful and disrespectful. We do. I think we do. Now, people talk about political correctness and political correctness gone mad, and I think it's usually because they think it means they can't act or behave as they would like to, as if there's some attempt to control them. So they might accuse people who practice political correctness as denying other people the right to free speech or they say you're sucking the fun out of everything. But I think the argument that, that being PC prevents freedom of speech is quite flawed. In many countries around the world, people do not have freedom of speech and there are dire consequences for speaking your mind. But here in Australia, we're very fortunate that we do enjoy this freedom. And I think freedom of speech gives us a right to say what we feel, but it also gives other people the right to point out if we're being offensive. It doesn't mean your words can't be criticised, it just means you can't be silenced. Some people think that, as I've said, that they, they could ignore political correctness for the sake of having a laugh. They tell us to lighten up. But when someone jokes about a person or a group they're not part of, their words can contribute to discrimination against that group, against that person. And the person who, who's making the joke doesn't probably doesn't have a lot to lose, but the people who are, are the butt of the joke often do. And I think um, this idea of political correctness is intended to help us to use language that is helpful instead of harmful. So whether the, the discrimination comes from racism, from homophobia, sexism, transphobia, the bottom line, I think, remains the same. So being PC, being politically correct, just means you understand that your actions affect people who are vulnerable to discrimination. Yes. And to go back to that phrase, which I do like very much, respect and generosity are things that we would celebrate. And as you say, that as sophisticated language users, we have plenty of different ways of saying things and can take care not to hurt or offend people. Do you have a right to be offended? When you say right, I suppose you're talking about something that can be enforced. I suppose I'm talking in a general sense about discourse in, in the social sphere. In a professional space, of course, it's entirely different. So in a workplace, a workplace um, health and safety uh, laws and regulations and policies in, uh, in, in workplaces really govern our conduct in those spaces. 
And so that's, you know, that, that's a kind of a, an entirely different matter. So I guess if you're in a workplace and someone says something hurtful that isn't, that is not illegal under the anti-discrimination law, the workplace has an obligation to support you from that hurt. When you're out in public, do you have a right to be offended? Absolutely you do, and you have a right to respond. Of course, people who make offensive statements often don't want to allow you that right of reply. I find it difficult to know how to respond to people who do make a statement that is, or a joke, a joke. It was only a joke. No need to no need to be the PC police. I'm only making a joke. But when it is someone you care about. The PC police woman. Yeah. <laughs> the lady PC police. <laughs> when, when it is someone you care about, how to, I, when it is someone I care about, I don't really know how to respond to that. I think it's a very difficult thing and I think it, I mean, it, it's contextual. It really depends on the situation. The kind of person I am is generally quite outspoken about things like that, but I also know that I need to pick my battles. I have been in many situations over my life where I've had to bite my tongue to protect myself or the other person from potential violence or worse kinds of abuse. Can you think of an example, Renee? I used to live in Richmond in uh, in Melbourne and I loved living in this space. The, the local train station has a, an underpass that goes underneath the station. It's not very long. It's maybe 20 metres, I would say. I can recall many times going through there and being very nervous because people would hang out. I don't, I don't know why this attracted this particular kind of person, but sometimes there would be someone who would be um, offensive about race directed at me and I would walk quickly because I didn't want to be assaulted. I could see maybe three males or something like that and I would just walk quickly. Other times it would be related to age. Maybe there's an older person walking with a trolley and, uh, you know, people would taunt them. The safest thing I often felt to to do in a situation like that is to go and walk next to the person as if I was with them and you'd often see a look of gratitude on the person's face and then when you're out in in the open in a safe space you'd you know part ways and really nothing would be said about it today I would I think I would say something I think I know a bit more but when I was younger you know as a as an immigrant I did feel quite vulnerable especially before I was granted citizenship, I always had this feeling, this kind of monkey on my shoulder that if I misbehaved, <laughs> that I could be sent back to purgatory and purgatory was, you know, up the apartheid regime in, in South Africa. Lenny Bruce, the uh, American comedian, back in the 1960s, I think it may have been, had a routine about diffusing the power of language rather than denying it. And I suppose an example of this might be the way that people have claimed or, or reclaimed, I'm not quite sure what the right term is there, but queer, which used to be a, an insult and a slur and was embraced by homosexuals who then wear it as a badge of as a badge of honor and you you think oh, I wonder if there's something there about being able to not stifle and not bury things but to bring them out into the open it's surprising to me that back in the 1960s when Lenny Bruce was talking he was arguing for a world in which nothing could not be said and that the way to take away the power was to allow these things to be said and I guess to claim them or reclaim them there is a word, the N-word, that I would not, and, and I'm not advocating that I should, but that I would not now dare utter. Is there a danger that what we end up doing is giving so much power to language that it actually makes it easier to hurt and to wound because it gives the power to the wrong place? It takes the agency away from the people who need it most and gives it to those who already have it. I think it's the ideal Unfortunately, I don't think we can really do that. I mean, I'd love to see people being able to say what they feel, but we can't get away from the fact that language is powerful. Now, take away or looking away from the negative, look at the positive. 
how good and how powerful is it when someone says they love you, when they say something complimentary, when they express forgiveness? Those are very, very powerful words. And I don't know that you can, you know, that you can force people to use, to use powerful language in one direction but not in the other. I think the, 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 the answer is really to educate people. And this is why I am on the side of generosity because I feel that just, just knowing from my own life, I'm in my 50s now, but when I was in my late teens and even when I was younger, I was quite precocious, I said some appalling things. These things came out and sometimes someone would correct me uh, sometimes somebody would push a book into my hand and I would learn a, a new thing. And I think that most people have potential to learn and potential to change. And I think deep down, most of us do care about fellow human beings. So while it would be nice to, not nice, it would be ideal for everyone to say whatever they'd like to, we have to take account of the fact that not everyone has, you know, an inbuilt kind of sensor for when their thoughts or their words could be harmful or hurtful to someone else. Mm. The late, great Milton Erickson, who was a psychotherapist, an American psychotherapist in the 20th century, had polio when he was in his youth and walked with a, a walking stick for the rest of his life. And he managed to upset a patient once. wasn't unusual for Erickson to upset patients. And this this patient said to him, Erickson, you bloody ugly old bastard, you. And Erickson held up his walking stick and said, Erickson, you ugly old crippled bastard, you. <laughs> Which is to say, if you want to use words to wound, you better be so good at them and that you are better than me. And furthermore, I do not accept your insult. I remember a story about two old men sitting on a step in New York. One of them was Jewish. They may both have been Jewish. And as probably not uncommon at the time, someone walked past and said something horrible, hurtful, neither respectful nor generous. And the old man just said nothing. And after this person had gone, his companion turned to him and said, but you didn't respond. You didn't say anything. He said, well, I look at it like this, that gentleman was offering me a gift and I declined to accept it. <laughs> Well, that certainly is beyond generous. <laughs> I think it's a good illustration of that, having that strength. But you, you can't know what someone is dealing with on any given day. You know, for, for most, for six out of seven days, someone may be happy and confident and nothing can faze them, but they wake up on the seventh day on the wrong, wrong side of the bed or, you know, something has happened to someone they love and they're feeling a little bit low and then uh, they stub their toe on the way out the front door and someone says something really uh, that, that two days ago might have just been water for ducks back and today, you know, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back uh, in terms of hurt and, um, and harm. A kind of related topic that has come up in in the past few years is this notion about cultural appropriation. Why I say it's related is there there are people who think they should be able to say anything, regardless of whether it is offensive or not. And this related notion of cultural appropriation, when someone from a dominant culture take something from another culture that's experiencing oppression. So some people think it's offensive, for example, uh, to have a piñata at a kid's party because it's appropriating something from the Mexican culture. And other people think, you know, these are aspects of culture are now in the public domain and, and in a, especially in a consumerist culture, you know, if you've purchased the rights to something, including the object like the pinata, then it's you know it's your right to to enjoy that. You know, there are a lot of lot of views about that. Have you guys? You guys <laughs> <laughs> cancelled. That's it, Renee. Your book will be taken off the shelf. You'll be banned, cast into the outer darkness. Now, I think that this term, guys, I think it's very much a reflection of my age. 
because when I was in, in a teen, it was the coolest thing to call people guys because you're not talking about gender, gender identity. It was seen in my friendship groups. It was seen as, as non-gender specific. So I think it's just it just shows my age. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to your example about the piñata, Renee, that is a terrific example because that strikes me as dreadful. That strikes me as really seriously dangerous. It requires us to start thinking about the purity of culture and the separation and the division between culture and that in any way at all to confuse or mix up or stir up culture can be construed as cultural appropriation. And that seems to me to be a a violently dangerous idea. For one, it, it horribly misunderstands culture. I have heard people complaining that the New Zealand haka, which is used in a lot of different contexts, is being diluted because it changes or because it is being used in circumstances that it wasn't originally for, which is to assume that somehow there's a kind of, that you can purify culture and take it back. And that seems to me to be an awful, awful idea. This whole idea of purity, given that the history of humanity and how human beings have, you know, evolved even culturally, it makes that a nonsense. But I guess cultural appropriation is different from something like cultural exchange. Now, commodities like gold and tea, gunpowder, pasta, rice, have been shared across different cultures throughout history and they're kind of borrowings. They're not the same as cultural appropriation or as I refer to in my book, cultural misappropriation, because they don't involve power. And I think that's the differentiation. So when different cultures come together on an equal footing, exchange can occur. But when dominant groups take from an oppressed group, then we're dealing with appropriation. And then there's another thing that when I first moved to Australia was quite common, a discussion about assimilation. So cultural exchange, again, is not assimilation. And it's what happens when minority cultures are forced to adopt features from the dominant cultures so they fit in. So they're kind of different things. So uh, assimilation is different from appropriation because it's done to ensure survival and to avoid discrimination. So they're quite different. But cultural appropriation is a problem, uh, probably three or four things I would point to. First, as I said, it continues the oppression of the non-dominant culture. And then it doesn't give people credit for their own culture. So if you look at a culture that's experiencing oppression, often as a result of colonisation, where, as in Australia, the dominant Groups claimed ownership of the land and the people. And then when the dominant group continues to steal aspects of the non-dominant culture, it continues that economic oppression and disadvantage of that culture. So, you know, examples in Australia, there are cases where white businesses owned by white Australians have stolen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artworks, for example, for use on T-shirts and souvenirs. And tourists don't know about this, but it allows the dominant culture to make money from the non-dominant culture without benefiting the original artists and without the original artists actually having a say about how their works are used. You know, sacred things appearing on T-shirts could be very hurtful and offensive. I guess another problem with cultural appropriation is that it creates stereotypes. I guess I'm guilty of this too, but cultural appropriation has got this really nasty habit of giving the dominant group credit for aspects of a culture they've taken and then reinforcing that power imbalance. You know, when a a white woman has an edgy new hair trend, gets her hair permed and everybody thinks it's amazing and she's created a new trend, but there's a whole population of us, of Indigenous people perhaps, who have curly hair naturally, nobody thinks it's special. And in fact, they, I mean, you know, they think, you know, it's awful. When I was growing up, you had, you know, you were told you should straighten your hair to make it better and so on. 
And um, so, you know, it, it's about um, someone with no ties to a culture giving credit for something that isn't theirs through that stereotyping. I saw a very good tweet the other day, which was um, name something that you think is British but isn't really. And the response was the entire contents of the British wow. Museum. <laughs> I was going to say curry. <laughs> Fish and chips. <laughs> Renee, what's, uh, what's your take on, on J.K. Rowling? Just for people who may not be following this, J.K. Rowling uh, made some comments on Twitter that trans people and those who are concerned about their rights took offence to, and it resulted in a huge controversy and lots of people getting very irate and some terrible things being being said. Uh, look, I don't have a fixed view about this. Uh, you know, as we talked about with political correctness, I, I, I feel that, um, you know, where someone has the freedom to say, to give their opinion on a, on a particular topic, someone who is affected by that also has the freedom to respond and to criticise that view. So I, I read an article written by J.K. Rowling explaining her views about why people who have transitioned from male to female should not be entitled to use the term woman. And I, you know, I, I don't disagree with her and I don't agree with her either. I feel this is, a, for me, this is a very new area of thinking I think even people in those communities in, in, in individuals these things are evolving and I don't think there's you know there's a hard rule I my only hard rule is to go back to uh, language that helps instead of harms for example the advice I give in my book to editors about how to deal with particular things. It doesn't say you must do X, Y, and Z. I say consult with the people, the individuals or the communities who are affected. And so Steve's earlier example about people's reclaiming of the term queer is, uh, you know, an example of, you know, how language evolves and how people people's feelings about these words. So, so when I was younger, um, when I was growing up, being called black was hurtful because it was meant to hurt. And today, people feel a sense of pride in that. And so, I think with, with you know the topics that J.K. Rowling's talking about, there is an evolution taking place. And I don't feel that I I'm not uh, in the affected groups. And so I don't feel that I need to give an opinion on that, but when I need to deal with something related to it, say, in my professional life, then I would seek out those communities and ask them, tell me, you know, at this time, how should we communicate with you and about you in ways that are respectful? You tell us. And if in two years things change, no problem. Let's talk about that again. So it's about that, you know, that sort of engagement. It seems to me that we, as Renee says, we're we're at a time when it when this is new to a lot of us, and it's a complex issue, and it's not clear cut. And I think one of the best ways forward is to allow people to utter views that we don't agree with. And in fact, a mark of, I would say, a mark of our maturity and our ability to respect the freedom of speech is not the speech that we already agree with, but the speech that we find really difficult to understand and, and disagree with perhaps very, very passionately. Um, so beautifully said. <laughs> well, thank you. And those two key words before, respect and generosity, I think I'd like to come back to those, that I felt that J.K. Rowling was, I thought, was attempting to speak about a difficult subject in a serious way, in a grown-up way. And that essay that you referred to, Renee, indicated some of where she was coming from. And I think that those people who want to shut down this generosity and this respect, who want to be able to say anything with impunity, would be rubbing their hands to watch people like J.K. Rowling and others who are on the 
the same side as those people who want to be respectful and generous and are being shouted down. And that J.K. Rowling survived, if you like, that she wasn't cancelled because she's a billionaire who lives in a, a, a great big house and has got houses all over the world, I hope, because she thoroughly deserves them. I think that's awful, that we ought to be giving the same ability for people to speak, even if they don't have her power and her ability to articulate her position. And surely we can talk to each other about these things without wanting to cancel someone because they say something we don't agree with. Yeah, I would like that. I think people have attributed things and posts to J.K. Rowling that she didn't actually make. So in, in that essay, she explains she was working on a particular book and she normally takes screenshots of tweets, you know, to reflect on as she's writing the book she's writing, which I know nothing about. And on this particular occasion, she liked it so that she could come back to that particular thing. Someone else who is who was clearly monitoring, policing her activity on Twitter decided that because she liked it, those were her views. And uh, I see this happening a lot on social media that you can read something, but if you like something because you want to indicate that you've read it and that you respect the person's right to say that, uh, it's taken as you, you know, having agreed with that. Mm, I'm not sure about that. I find that a bit of a naive argument. Mm. I think J.K. Rowling knows how Twitter works. So I'm, I'm not quite in the same place as the two of you. Are you holding her to a higher standard than us, though? No, I, I don't think so. I think that anybody who is appears to be supporting transphobic comments, I would, mm. I would hold to the same standard, which is to say that I don't think it's kind and I don't agree with it and I don't like it. I'm still reading the books, by the way. So I'm not, I'm not um, on the cancel brigade, but I've gone off her personally. Um, people often wonder what what can they do to build cultural understanding and awareness because it's very easy to stick what you know um, and, and rather than try and meet people who are different. But there are ways, you know, becoming self-aware through reflection, working out your own beliefs and your values and your personal biases, including about your own cultural background can be, you know, helpful. Uh, thinking about assumptions you make about friends and peers and people you work with and strangers walking down the street, what assumptions you make about those. Do do your own research, learn about other cultures. I love to do that through travel, but in COVID times, you know, watching films on SBS from other countries, attending food festivals and all of those online, of course, there are lots of resources Talking to someone from a different cultural background and getting to know them can be really helpful. Uh, Travelling, as I said, and ultimately just being more respectful, uh, being being accepting of people. Sometimes, you know, for one reason or another, it's, it's not that easy to understand some cultural differences. So I think the best approach is to acknowledge that some people are different and accept that that's okay. You don't have to understand or agree with them, but you can still, you know, accept people for who they are. That's lovely. Renee, what's the title of your book? Editing for Sensitivity, Diversity and Inclusion, A Guide for Professional Editors. It was published in October this year, 2020. They will find it on my website at reneeotmar.com.au. Thank you so much. That's been really fascinating to hear the two of you batting things back and forwards as well. (laughs) Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to do this over a, a glass of wine at some point too. So would I, Renee. So would I. Thank you so much. So, Steve, J.K. Rowling keeps coming up. She does. She's been a naughty girl, a naughty woman, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, don't say girl. A quick Google shows you the fight. And I do think she's out of line, actually, in as much as I get to judge, you know, what she says. One of the articles that got her into trouble, she has a go on Twitter about an article about menstruation. So the article is about um, menstrual health and hygiene. And 
it is titled Creating a More Equal Post-COVID World for People Who Menstruate. And she objects to the phrase people who menstruate. People who menstruate, I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumban, Wimpen, Wumad. And that is read as a, as a transphobic tweet. What, what do you think about that? I don't, to be honest, very much. I'm not involved enough in the subject to want to do the work. I know that she wrote a long article that Renee referred to, actually, which talked about the background or some of the background and her own experiences and her concerns. I haven't read it and I don't intend to. And I don't I don't much care. I don't know whether she's right or wrong and I don't care. But I think she's entitled to have her opinion. And I do think, to anticipate what I expect others might say, yes, that of course means that others are entitled then to object and even to call her transphobic, which is what happened. What concerns me is that there was then a God almighty pylon, which she only managed to survive because she's JK Rowling and she's a billionaire and she's got a shit ton of money. And it's an example of what's been called cancel culture, where if you say something which is not considered appropriate, then people will go out of their way to use violently abusive language and will do everything to get your career sunk if they possibly can. So what you object to is not the transphobic tweets, but cancel culture. Yes. I'll leave it to others to object to transphobic tweets because they they certainly have a, have a great appetite for doing so and a great more time to spend being vigilant about it than I do. Staying with the tweeting for a minute, Renee asked me if I judge J.K. Rowling to a higher standard and I said, no, I the same standard as everyone else. But, but on reflection, I think I do judge her to a higher standard. I mean, she's got no doubt media advisors and media training and all the rest of it. If you're a, a normal person, you screw up and on your Twitter and no one cares. But if you're J.K. Rowling, you don't you have a responsibility to be kind and to be generous and not to be a bit of an ass? I suppose so. But there's a kind of common mistake that we make where we expect that people who are good at one thing are going to be good at other things. We expect our Australian cricketers or any cricketers to be decent human beings and not to punch people in the head. And then we get disappointed because they can hurl a cricket ball, but they're no good as human beings. Whereas in fact, their training and everything about their life experience probably deprives them of many of the opportunities the rest of us have had to learn how to be decent human beings. That's not to forgive them, but it is to say that we will, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. The same may be true about JK Rowling. I've never met her, never likely to meet her. I like her writing, but I don't know that that then means that we can expect not to be disappointed that she is going to say things that you might disagree with, or that you might even consider unkind and ungenerous to use Renee's terms. So many people now are doing their growing up in public when even you were younger that recently, Susie. You know, we could get away with all kinds of shit because no one would no one would have anything other than a, a very foggy memory in the morning of what had gone on the night before. And there was no permanent record against your name. And as Renee's just said, she makes the very good point, you know, which of us is without sin in this area? Who hasn't said something awful or terrible? But it didn't have the same consequences then as it does now. Yeah, and we all know that's a function of social media and the way and accessibility now of information, which is why I think we do look for that higher standard from our, our public figures. People make mistakes. That's fine. Absolutely. And we should be generous with that as well. But if someone takes a position over and over that is unkind and ungenerous, that's not a mistake. That's them showing their position. <laughs> and if I'm in disagreement with that position, then aren't I? I mean, cancelling someone means really it's about not giving them support, right? No longer being a fan, no longer supporting them is how I read that. No, I don't think so. I think the cancel culture is deplatforming people. Let's take an example. This isn't a specific example, but it is an example. You know, someone is booked to speak at a university and they happen to say something which gets on the wrong side of the of the sort of people who take most interest in these things. And they will then campaign. And typically, very often what happens is the university caves in at the earliest opportunity because they haven't got the intestinal fortitude to stand up for the freedom of speech. Surely, if young people at university or any people at university, people who university, let us call them that, <laughs> people who university, <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> if they cannot be exposed to ideas and thoughts that provoke them and cause them to think hard about why they have the view that they have, if they're going to be sheltered and put in cotton wool and given trigger warnings at every possible point, then I don't think we're turning out very resilient, robust people whose views are very well formed and well expressed because they haven't been challenged. They've been endorsed, you know, they've been they've been nourished to think the way that that is politically correct, to use an awful term. When I've seen this, it, it's white supremacists, that kind of people whose university talks get cancelled. Do you argue that they should have a platform? It does get difficult at the edges, but who determines what the edges are? I know that in Germany, it's against the law to defend the Holocaust. And yet I wonder if that is necessarily the best approach, that sometimes Dr. Sunlight will work in our favour, that by deplatforming someone, they can then play the martyr. They can then say, <laughs> I've got a perfectly valid point, but you'll never get to hear it because I'm not allowed to talk to you about mm. it. So should Holocaust deniers get free speech? Yes. Interesting. Not the position that most people take. I mean, legally, the answer is no, right? Hate speech is illegal in most places. Yes, it is. I know that one of the concerns is that it's that old thing about free speech doesn't mean being able to shout fire in a crowded theatre, that speech has consequences. But it certainly feels to me as if we've gone too far in the wrong direction. And one of the points that I was attempting to make to Rene and to you in the interview that we've just heard is that it gives a great deal of agency to anyone who wants to say bad, stupid, ungenerous, unkind things. If everybody goes into a fainting fit as soon as somebody says something that you don't like, if you get offended, nothing happens. Nothing happens unless you let it. I feel like I can want to not have Nazis get a platform. I don't want to listen to Holocaust deniers. I don't think other people should. So, no, I don't think they should have free speech. I've ended up talking about Nazis again. <laughs> <laughs> You're just happy to have people, if they, if they get into it, then they do, and if they don't, that's fine. I didn't say I was happy about it. Okay. I'm not happy to listen to Holocaust deniers, and I'm not happy for them to be peddling their ridiculous, hate-filled nonsense. I'm not happy about it. I'm just concerned about the consequences, drawing the line so that where you end up is kind of where we're at. So there's a line between Holocaust denials and objecting to the phrase people who menstruate. Is it about where the the typical person, the reasonable person, what they find offensive? Or is it about what the person who is in the affected population finds offensive? The old saying has it that hard cases make bad law, which is to say we can always think of examples that make any principle look wonky or bad. Mm. And maybe that's not the best way to explore this. I'm not sure. Just about everybody finds Nazis offensive. Only some people find the phrase people who menstruate offensive. Like, do we go with the majority or do we go with the vulnerable people? One of the common lines that is often used is that somebody is punching down, which is to use our example of J.K. Rowling, that she is picking on a group that is one of, if not the most vulnerable and stigmatised and that, in effect, therefore, she is bullying. And I think that's a, a worthwhile concern because what it talks to is the power of the situation that J.K. Rowling has this platform. Anything that she says will always get reported and probably on her terms because she's setting the terms so that she has a lot of power and a lot of privilege. I accept all of that. But again, what I think that then tends to do is to encourage people, if you like, to look for opportunities to be punched down on. Speaking as a white, Anglo, middle-aged, middle-class male, I've got very little chance of finding anything that I can accuse anybody of punching down at me <laughs> on. <laughs> but you've, you've probably got half a dozen cards that you could use, Susie, if you chose to. And happily will as well. <laughs> I'll play every card I've got <laughs> if, it, if it means I win the argument. <laughs> But let me read you something. This is where we've got to. And this is from the BBC, 
that bastion of fake news from early December. And it says that a vote on free speech at Cambridge University has strongly rejected guidelines requiring opinions to be respectful after warnings this could limit freedom of expression. Instead, the policy on free speech will support tolerance of differing views. The proposed rules would have required staff, students and visiting speakers to remain respectful of the views and identities, in quotes, of others. But there were claims this would block controversial ideas and debates. The university's governing body, the Regent House, has voted by a big majority in support of amendments from those worried about a threat to academic freedom, introducing a commitment to tolerance rather than respect. This is where we've got to, that a university, one of the oldest and most respected universities in the world, is turning itself inside out, trying to frame a way of accepting freedom of speech. And I've long thought that universities should be the absolute bastions of bonkers speech. It's easy to defend the sort of speech that you would agree with or that you think is on the right side of politics or the right side of the view or is supporting the underdog, whatever you want to call it. And a principle is only a principle if it costs you something. Now, what principle are we espousing? What did, what are we letting it cost us in terms of freedom of speech? When was the last time that we allowed someone that freedom of speech? I was rather shocked by the response to the J.K. Rowling thing because some of the responses that I saw were so filled with fury and hatred and violently abusive speech that I thought if that is an example of what people are subjected to, and she's just a particularly high-profile example. We know that this is happening every day, thousands of times a day. What they comment on, what they say, what they like even is being policed by people who will then pile on in the worst possible way to to dock someone, which is to dig out all of their personal details, their address, their phone number, their family's details, and publish them as a way of threatening that person into compliance and silence. What we're running into here is still that line between tolerance of differing opinions and hate speech and where one turns into the other or rather where we're tolerating hate speech as opposed for an opinion that, that's different to ours. And what you're describing about the response to some of these things, like the J.K. Rowling thing, is hateful speech directed at her for her views. And that's not helpful either. That's not making a kind public debate. I've no doubt that those people think they're doing the right thing. I don't think they are gleefully reveling in making somebody else uncomfortable or unhappy. I think what they're doing is they think that they are doing the right thing, that someone has said something that to them is so offensive and so oppressive that they will stop at nothing to silence that because they regard it as hate speech. And the very term hate speech is, you know, who who polices that? You know, your your idea of hate speech may be different from mine. And as soon as you label something hate speech, then that justifies any kind of censorship. There is legislation. So who polices that? The, the law in Australia, certainly, and in many other countries. There is a legal solution to that. It's not a philosophical question. It's a, it's a real life legal question. Hmm. So why does J.K. Rowling, we'll just stay with her, why make snarky comments, not because she's afraid of people jumping on her. I'm sure she's up for that, but she's genuinely hurting people's feelings. So why do that? That's a different thing, isn't it? That there is an awful lot of unkindness and lack of generosity in public speech these days. And J.K. Rowling's was just one example. Now, I'm not going to defend her that if if you regard it as being hurtful and snarky, as I say, my point is not about defending her. It's defending her right, I suppose, to be hurtful and snarky. Yeah, but I think you are heading into a position where you're defending her right to be snarky, but not the right of other people to then respond. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, absolutely, people can respond. And, and it was a point, again, that Rene made that freedom of speech doesn't mean lack of consequence. You know, that if you say something that upsets people, then they will respond and they will respond sarcastically or aggressively. But when it gets to the point of the viciousness is what concerns me, because it's something about social media that seems to free people up to say things in ways that they wouldn't do in person. And maybe that applies to J.K. Rowling as well. Maybe she would have seen if she'd said, if she'd let slip a remark like that and she saw the look on someone's face, maybe she'd apologise or explain or withdraw. 
but there's something that you know you can sit and stew on a on a remark that someone has made and hone your hurtful response for hours on end. Sure, we've all done it. Yeah, we're all keyboard warriors, especially late on a Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're looking for is a proportional response. She can be snarky to X degree and they can be snarky back to X degree, but people are crossing lines. She's snarky up to seven, but people coming back at her were cancel culturing her up to 11. Yeah, and I'm aware that, of course, I'm the worst possible person to be making this argument because, as I've referred to before, demographically, there's hardly anyone in a more privileged position than I am. So I can't really speak to the hurt that people feel. But I do wonder if sometimes that hurt is, there's a lot of hurt by proxy that goes on. There's an awful lot of policing of watching out for something that may have the wrong nuance or doesn't have the right acronym or whatever it might be to jump on and never lift a finger to actually make anything different, you know, to change the situation. You know, my work here is done. I said something nasty to JK Rowling in a tweet. (laughs) Now I'm going to bed, (laughs) sleeping the sleep of the just. (laughs) Well, you don't know. Maybe the people who were taking offence are the people who are all up late at night staffing hotlines for um, trans people with mental health issues. Who's who's to know? They'd be fighting over the phones if that were the case. There'd be thousands of them for every phone available. And I don't think that's the case. So sum up political correctness, I'm pro. I have to say I am pro Renee's position, which she pointed out that her book was not prescriptive. It was about appealing to those editors and writers who want to be respectful and generous and to give them a structure and a framework for thinking about their language and for thinking about some principles and ways of applying that language, not in a prescriptive, a thought police kind of a way, but simply, you know, to write the book that she wanted to read when she felt the need for it. And if we take that position and extend it from editing language and other people's language, and we took that into public discourse and private discourse too, wouldn't that be a good thing? Yes, it would. I thoroughly agree. The difficulty of my position, of course, is that I'm so disinclined to judge people that I have a really hard time when I come up against judgmental people. I'm twisted into knots then. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Whereas I'm quite judgmental, but I don't like justifying it. (laughs) So on average between us, I think we've got it about right. We're one balanced person. (laughs) (laughs) And one very unbalanced one. (laughs) Someone who's right out there worrying about Nazis. Thanks for listening to the Bloom Podcast. If you like us, tell a friend. And why wouldn't you like us? And why not? (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at... Steve at bloomcast.com.au or follow us on social media. You're using my email address. Certainly am. (laughs) If you don't like us, tell somebody you really dislike. (laughs) 